Hello and welcome to the Overtime Heroics Baseball Podcast, Cheap Seats Chatter. I'm today's host, Matthias Altman Kurosaki, and with me, we have Ryan Splash Potts and Alex Clark. First things first, guys, how are we doing on this fine Tuesday evening? It is currently raining in Tucson, which is really weird, but here's the funniest part. Like, half of the country is, like, getting snowed on right now. It's like it was snowing in Georgia. It's snowing up the East Coast. And people in Georgia don't know how to deal with snow. Well, Tucson's problems has, have elevated. They don't know how to deal with rain. I, I, like, I get that we live in a desert, but at the same time, how do you not know how to drain sidewalks and asphalt? I, I don't get it. I can't say anything. Well, I, I looked at, I went to California, so I live in Seattle, obviously. We obviously know how to, how to drain. But um, I went to California for a little bit and they had the record for most rainfall in one day. And it was basically a few feet worth of rain and it was insane. But I knew there was going to be a problem regardless because I, when we're tour, I was touring a baseball field, I was working for a league back at the time and their drainage system was a one gallon hole in each of the dugouts. That was their drainage system. And I'm like, Nani, like, <laughs> no, I, 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 so I get not being able to deal right. There was, I remember driving when I was over there and there were, the roads are completely clear because of a light drizzle. And I'm like, I'm from Seattle. I can handle this in a heartbeat. Yeah. I remember uh, when I was visiting one of my older brothers, my junior year of high school out in California, it, it rained a lot. I remember it, it, it downpoured. Um, but I used to spend all uh, every summer in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and it rained like crazy uh, every time I went. So I, I'm used to that too. Uh, also, being up in New York, uh, we uh, uh, our baseball games uh, would frequently get rained out because the fields would drain really poorly for some reason. So I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, right now, uh, it's cold. Uh, it snowed recently this past week um i'm heading back to syracuse on saturday where it is below zero a lot uh so yeah i can't wait to get back to the freezing cold i'll tell you that much uh it wasn't that cold before i left but now that it's been almost six weeks it's pretty cold um but anyways uh the main topic today we are doing a versus um obviously still nothing really happening in baseball lockout still going going uh, the discussion went absolutely nowhere uh, this past week. So we're doing another versus. We've talked center fielders in the past, and now we are moving over to the corner outfield positions. We're talking about right field today. We have five guys who all played in the 90s and the 2000s. And uh, for one of, one of these guys, he played in the 80s too. So anyways, we're going to start with our first guy who is a pretty good player and now has a very talented son who plays in the big leagues. And that is Vladimir Guerrero. Um, played for a few different teams. Uh, guys, what are, your, what are your thoughts on Vlad Guerrero? When I think about Vladdy, like, I think of one word. And that word is power. Everything about Vladimir Guerrero was being a, the powerful guy. The guy that would just hit bomb after bomb. But on top of it, also had an incredibly strong arm defensively he was a menace like people well a lot of times will think of guys like Ichiro and others that have cannons of an arm Vladdy was right there along with him watching him play the outfield you knew that if that ball was bouncing 
off the wall or something like that, watching him play those balls over in right field in in LA or Anaheim, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you knew that you could not try to take second base on him. He was going to gun you down. No matter how fast you were, you knew that ball was going to get there faster than you could say oops. Like, at that point, watching him play, it was always fun to watch Vlad because he was such a dominating hitter. He was one that would swing and he would swing hard. You know, if he made contact, that ball was never going to land again. The ball would become the bird that Randy Johnson accidentally hit. Like, that's just what happens when Vlad played the game. He was so just powerful. And I think to follow up on your point, that's something you only get through watching, Vladdy. That's not something you're. I'm going to look at on baseball reference and say, oh, well, he had a million assists. He ended with 126 assists in right field, which is awesome. But you have to factor in that there was a fear factor when you're on the base paths and Vladdy was standing out there in right field. And it's very similar to what we're going to touch on with Ichiro and even Larry Walker later, that when he's standing in right field, like, you don't have a stat to say how many guys just stopped at first base or how many guys just stopped at second base instead of going to third on a, a first to third, right? Or how many guys stayed at third instead of going home? Like we don't even have numbers for that nowadays that this fear factor of like Hunter Renfro, like there's nothing to quantify. And that's what makes Vladdy's case so interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I watching him play, the thing is that def- defensively, he was he, like by range and all that, he wasn't actually that great of a defender and actually never won a gold glove, surprisingly. But his throwing arm was unreal. Uh, for uh, those of you who play Stratomatic, uh, Vladimir Guerrero does not normally have good uh, fielding and error ratings, but he always has a minus four throwing arm, which means that whoever you are running, your running speed just got slower because he just he, – he throws everyone out, it seems. You know, he – for his career also offensively, I mean, the dude, 318, 379, 553 slash line. That's a 931 OPS, 140 OPS plus, 449 homers, 477 doubles, 2,590 hits, uh, 1,496 RBIs. Uh, surprisingly, only 59.5 war, but that's unfortunately because his defense – wasn't isn't too well liked by the metrics um obviously he was an mvp in 2004 which kind of stings for me the mets were supposed to be in agreement with vlad but they heard he had a back problem and so they backed out of the deal he signed with the angels and immediately won mvp because you know that's what it is he also was a pretty good base stealer he in 2002 he hit 39 homers and stole 40 bases uh in 2001 he hit 34 homers and stole 37 bases so, you know, he could mash, he could run. I mean, he was basically a five-tool player. He was great with Montreal. He was great with the Angels. He was pretty good with the one year he was in Texas, too. Heck, helped them win their first ever pennant. So, I mean, he's great. Uh, it's just tough to rank him. Also, one thing, while he uh, didn't really walk much, only an 8% walk rate, he only struck out 10% of the time. Um, he, I mean, he was known for being a bad ball there. I mean, the dude... They had the whole video of the head, shoulders, knees, and toes because he could literally hit a pitch. About that. Yeah. He could literally hit a pitch no matter where you threw it, you know, whether it bounced on the ground or if it was at his head. It didn't matter where you threw it. Vlad was going to hit it. So the tough part is that if we're going by a purely offensive stand from a purely offensive standpoint, he would probably be ranked higher because of his defense. It's really tough. 
I mean, if we're going by wins above replacement, he probably goes fifth. Uh, if we're going by offense, he's probably towards the top. Um, where do where do you guys have him ranked? So I have him ranked at fourth. And it's it's hard to put in there because, yeah, you're right. Like, offensively, absolutely incredible. One thing I really want to point out, though, and this I think is – I'm going to use kind of your argument to kind of put it a little bit of a different lens on it. We have talked about how Vladimir Guerrero was one of the best power hitters. He was a, sl- a dominating slugger at the dish. One of the things that you see a lot of the times with sluggers are high strikeout rates. Vladimir Guerrero did not have that. I mean, heck, he had less than a thousand strikeouts in his 16 year career, like 985. So just shy of that, where he averaged on 162 game average, 74 strikeouts per year. Think about how good that is. We, we talk about MVP level players today that are mashers that strike out 200 times a season. And now we look at Vladimir Guerrero and he just always found a way to put the ball in play. Almost like a hit and run type machine type guy where you always, no matter where the ball was, you found a way to get your bat on. That just shows how incredible hand-eye coordination he had. And on top of it, with those muscles of his, he was able to just destroy pitches no matter where they were. Offensively, he is near the top of this list. Defensively, yes, the range is a problem, but you're, I'm still not – I don't have a problem to put him, him in right field. I mean, heck, that cannon, like we said, that cannon gave him a fear factor that you he's not going to have a ton of assists because people are too scared to run on him. So that's what kind of hurts the stats a little bit too much, and I feel bad about him for that. I don't have him at the bottom because there are a few other guys that we have. You know, there's one guy that I think is definitely at the bottom of this list, but – I think that he is criminally underrated, if anything, because you look at what he's done and you look at what he, he has this preconceived notion of being a slugger and slugger usually means again, I'm going to swing and miss, or I'm going to swing all 10,000 feet. No, he swung and always made contact in some way. Yeah. Yeah, (sighs) Go go ahead, Splash. Yeah. One of my things with Guerrero is that, when you you think power hitter, you think, okay, and you think bad defensive right fielder, but with good arm. Okay, what do you think of when you think of like batting average? Oh, probably in the two seventies. The way no, no, no. Vlad Guerrero was always above three hundred. Even even as at the end of his career, he was a two ninety hitter with Baltimore, two ninety five one year. He was 315, 330, 337, 340, year in, year out, career 318 batting average. That is ridiculous. Like, I know batting average, we'll have a conversation with some of our other players later about specifically batting average, but the ability of Guerrero to hit the ball consistently with contact and with power, he had 600 slugging percentage in 99 and 2000. And was 590 plus in 02 and 04. But he's also batting 345, 330, 337, 329. Like that is that is ridiculous. And you're talking OPS over a thousand, three different seasons, OPS plus over 150, four years in a row, five out of six years, 360 total bases a couple years. Like he led the National League. In total bases in 2002, this is when a guy named Barry Bonds was playing baseball, right? And 
Albert Pujols was playing baseball and all these legendary hitters were playing and he was the one that stood above, you know? So he was the one that, you know, had an OPS above a thousand, had a 336, 417, 593 slash line. But that is incomprehensible. Yeah. And now that I think about it, I'm looking at his baseball reference page. And so he led, he led the NL in hits in 2002 he led the AL in runs in 2004. He led his league in total bases twice. And actually, he led in intentional walks five times. But he never led in home runs. He never won a batting title. He never led in OPS. Never led in OPS+. Plus. He won MVP once. And he was a nine-time All-Star. I mean, he's almost I, – I mean, actually, I would say this about almost everyone we're talking about today. They're, he's underrated. So – uh, on this list, though, I think I have him at fourth, too. Um, but uh, before we move on, any other final thoughts on Vlad? Yes, he would be number four on my list as well. Alex, are you also putting him at number four, you said? Yeah, I'm putting him at number four. And thank you, Splash. I wanted to – I forgot to actually – that was part of my argument I forgot to say was his batting average. But I also felt like, you know, it may have been – kind of obviously from the fact of, again, he's able to hit everything. And with how baseball just works, where bloop singles are a thing and all those, and being able to get a little broken, bad flops, like you're going to just find a way to continue to hit. If you find a way to get ball, get bat on ball. So when it comes to Vlad, he was one of the best to do it. Yeah. I, I certainly enjoyed watching Vlad play and I'm, Quite pleased that he is in the Hall of Fame now. Anyways, we're moving on to the next guy who's might be the only guy who we don't ever see enshrined in Cooperstown, which is unfortunate because he was a very good player. I'm talking about Gary Sheffield, who a bit more of a journeyman. He played for eight different teams, actually, uh, throughout his 22-year career. Uh, I was at the game. Gary Sheffield hit his 500th career home run. It was my first game at City Field, actually. Um, uh, i I, I have a number of thoughts on Sheffield. What were your guys' thoughts on his career? For Sheffield overall, he's another one of those interesting ones where he was a very, how do I want to put it? He was a very good player that did a lot of things very, very well. Again, you take a look at just the raw stats, over 500 home runs in his career, a career batting average of 292. Two, even 253 stolen bases, even over 1,600 RBIs. I mean, the Duke the Duke could flat out hit. You take a look at some of his other accolades. He's a nine-time All-Star. He is a five-time Silver Slugger. He does have a batting title. And, I mean, just look at him. He's played for a bunch of different teams as well. He, you said he, you saw him hit his 500th homer. Man, this is another one of those guys that you just kind of think back, and I think is almost kind of aged – I don't want to say aged better, but is one that as when his career came to an end, it almost got more, he got almost more recognition as his career ended because you got to really see, man, this guy really did a lot of amazing stuff throughout his career. There was a number of times, in fact, I'm counting it right now. And I believe it's one, two, three, four, six times in his career where he was in the top 10 in the MVP voting. And that's ranging all the way from 1992, all the way to 2005. Man, this guy was was the type of player that really could do it all throughout his entire career. And that's something that's really underrated when it comes to baseball players, especially legends. 
that are able to go and say, you know, I can play at strong at this level. And then as I get older, I'm going to still play at a strong level. Maybe not the exact same, but still play very good baseball. I think with chef, you get a little bit of the sort of mercenary vibes to steal a term from like modern NBA. And I think that it shouldn't hurt him, but it ends up hurting him that he doesn't have like a specific tie to a team. Like when you think of Gary Sheffield, what team do you think of? It might be the Marlins where he won a world series. It might be like a specific team. Like he played for your Mets or my Braves. He played with the, the evil empire Yankees. He was on the tigers when I've got MLB power pros, but there's not a team that you can associate with Sheffield over really any other team other than maybe the Marlins because he won a world series there. And that's his career highlight in 97. So I think that over time plays against him for like something like hall of fame voting. If he played 22 years with the Marlins, or let's say he started in Milwaukee, let's say he played 22 years with the Brewers. I feel like he's a hall of famer and like a Brewers legend, but most people don't even think he played for the Brewers, right? He is not a, you don't think of him as a brewer. You think of him for one of other, one of like 17 other teams. So I think there is some, it kind of hurts him in a way it shouldn't, but it kind of does at least in terms of like the modern perspective of, Oh, well, he played for a bunch of different teams, but is he going to be, is he on an all-time roster for the Padres? No Marlins, maybe, but that's just because of the Marlins, right? Dodgers. No Braves. No Yankees. No, I mean, he was a, a two-time silver slugger, two-time all-star, two-time top 10 MVP vote getter with the Yankees. And he's kind of just like there in their history. So I think there's, there's some perspective, I guess, that he was obviously a great player, won a batting title, won an on-base percentage title, won an OPS title with the 96 Marlins. Terrific hitter, 177 OPS plus 95, 189 and 96 to lead the league. But you also have to ask, where's his place? Like he's almost like a legend without a home in a way. Well, and you, you mentioned all those teams. The thing was that Sheffield was a very tough negotiator and Brewers fans, especially dislike him because when he was with them, he was unhappy with the team and he purposely played poorly so that he could get traded. And, you know, so he was, uh, he was on the Padres. He won a batting title, but then there was a whole, situation where he got injured they took an extension offer off the table then he gets traded to the marlins who in return the marlins got some kid named trevor hoffman in the the padres got some dude named trevor hoffman in the deal i don't know if he ever turned into anything you know surely he didn't um but you know chef mashed the marlins then you know when the marlins were blowing the team up in 98 the thing is that uh chef is a kid from florida and he wanted to stay with the marlins but he um he got dealt in the Mike Piazza trade. Him, Charles Johnson, and Jim Eisenreich get traded. But Chef said he would not go – he would not agree to the trade because he had a no-trade clause. He said he was going to veto it unless they, you know, agreed to pay his all of his state taxes and all, you know, give him a $6 million check and all this. So he played hardball no matter where he went. That's the thing. And then, you know, he had those two years with the Braves and then the three years with the Yankees and then – you know, the two years with Detroit, which really uh, backfired on the Tigers because he didn't really live up with the expectations there. And that's why he got cut, end up with the Mets, where he was actually a good leader for the Mets, I think, for the younger guys. Um, more walks than strikeouts. That's a big thing for me. 
509 homers. He's the only player to hit his 500th home run with the Mets. Uh, the elephant in the room here is also he was implicated in the Mitchell report. Um, he was one of uh, Greg Anderson's clients, allegedly. Uh, he supposedly was working with Balco. Um, apparently, a FedEx receipt uh, sent to uh, Sheffield in 2003 was cited during a the search warrant for Greg Anderson. So you also have to keep that in mind, uh, which, I mean, again, I, I care less and less about steroids uh, now that Bud Selig is in the Hall of Fame, but you can't just forget about that. So all things considered, also he uh, so we're talking about right field. He actually played a lot of uh, a lot of third base. Also, uh, defensively, he was below average at every position he played: right field, left field, third base, shortstop, first base, even. So, well, actually, he only played nine games at first base, so that's kind of uh, beyond the point. But I uh, played twenty-two years. As great as he was, I think he's fifth for me. Uh, and surprisingly, he never won an MVP, which is crazy. He was actually runner-up in 2004 to Vlad Guerrero, a year in which apparently Chef uh, played with a torn UCL in his thumb all year, and he still had a great season. But oh, and we also can't forget about his iconic batting stance. So, yeah, um, where where do you guys have him? I have him fifth. Yeah, I'm with you. I have him at fifth as well. And it's, it is kind of sad because you do see that he was the consummate hitter the entire time. But like you said, the Mitchell report kind of hurts him on that. The defense kind of hurts him on that as well. He doesn't have the same kind of fear factor that Vladimir, that Vladimir Guerrero had. That's so you can't use that really to help him out. Even at this point, I think overall for him, he's fifth on this list, but that's still not to take away from the amazing career that he has had. He is still going to go down as one of the best was like one of the best hitting right fielders out there. Yeah. And I think to piggyback off of your MVP point that it's almost uh, like funny in a way how great players sometimes just don't win MVPs just based on the years they have even you could be a top five hitter every single season for 20 years and <clears throat> just never break through, or you could have one like outlier season and whoop de doo you win an MVP. So just to hammer that home, Gary Sheffield ranks 61st all time in MVP win shares without winning an MVP. He's one spot behind Ryan Howard. He's ahead of MVP, Steve Garvey, MVP, Ricky Henderson, Chuck Klein, Sammy Sosa, Nellie Fox, Chipper, Joe Medwick, Freddie Freeman, George Foster, Andre Dawson. So it's just funny how it works. And he's, you know, in the same, like Roy Campanella, who won three MVPs, is 57. Sheffield, who won zero, is 61st. It's funny how baseball works. Yeah, no, that, that, that is pretty crazy. I mean, Sheffield, he got votes in a lot of years. That's the thing. So um, I, I have him fifth. It seems like we all have him fifth. So uh, on, on that note, uh, we're going to move on to our next guy, who's one of my all-time favorite players. And I think that goes for everyone uh, on the show. And most, I, I, it's hard to not like this guy. That is Ichigo Suzuki. Um, for me, as a Japanese-American, uh, I, I've gotten to watch Ichigo forever. Uh, my grandmother even loves watching him uh, where during, during his playing days. I mean, he, his games are always on TV in Japan. Um, and he's all, he's all over the city on billboards, everything. He does advertisements everywhere there. Uh, I have a number of thoughts on this guy. Uh, Alex, I know you're the Mariners fan here. I'll go to you first on this. I mean, uh, what, what do you make of his career? 
Sure, you want to go to me first, be the Mariner guy? No, yeah. Well, yes. I'll tell you this right now. If that, uh, if this doesn't tell you a little bit more about how I feel about him, I'm we- currently at this moment wearing my Ichiro jersey. Uh, look, Ichiro's an icon. Like, there's not a whole lot more you really need to say. He's a player that really defined an era. There was a lot of times where, before he was signed, you know, before he was signed, there was a lot of questions around, around Ichiro. Was he going to adapt to the MLB game? He had a very different style that people weren't sure if it was going to translate well. Guess what? It translated well. He, in his first year, 2001, age 27 season, blew every critic out of the water by basically winning every award underneath the sun getting an all-star nod, winning the MVP, winning rookie of the year, getting a gold glove and a silver slugger all in one year. Normally with a lot of players, you think, oh, you know, he just needs a little time to adapt. (laughs) He just said, no, I'm just ready to go. He is a consummate hitter. He was one that didn't, was not going to have the big home run swing. Although if you ever watched him hit batting practice, you know, he had that power swing. But, I mean, his staple was always the slap single. You know, the, sing- the single that was going to go opposite field or was going to go right in between first and second. And he was just going to outrun you. He was going to outrun you to first base, then he was going to run to second base, then he was going to run to third. And you were going to say, what? By the time he had already gone to third. That's how good this guy was. In his fir- I mean, look at this. In his first year. We're talking a rookie here to the MLB. Yes, he played in Japan. Yes, he was incredible in Japan. I get that. I'm talking strictly MLB here. When we talk about hit totals, we'll we'll use Japan in that as well. But in his first year, leads the league in hitting with 242 hits, has 56 stolen bases, and a batting average of 350. This dude is insane. This guy is a silver slugger. He's an all-star. He's an MVP. He's everything. And then you look at his career as a whole, it doesn't even really do it do him all the well much of justice. You know? A 311 batting average, 60 war over his career, four, uh, just a little over 1,400 runs and over 500 stolen bases. The RBI total is low, but I get it. He was a leadoff hitter, so that makes more sense. But a career on base percentage, a career on base percentage of 355. That's nice. The other thing with it is that you take a look. Yes, he's he was great. Uh, he's great with the stick in his hands, but he also was incredible defensively. I mean, you look at him, and I mean, the second seat, one of the first series that he played in baseball, he unleashed a throw from right field that was simply dubbed the throw. Dave Meehouse said it best where he threw something out of Star Wars right there. Like, God, this guy, just like Vladimir Guerrero, had one of the best cannons. He watching him defensively, his speed let him go everywhere around right field. His defensive ability would let him rob home runs like he was Mike Trout. This guy, when he was playing all the way up until 2010, was a lot of people could say was the best player in baseball. There are definitely other people that are in that conversation, obviously, but he was always there in that conversation too. He was an icon of the game. 
He was someone that you knew that when you watched him play, as soon as he did his stance, because they put the bat out, adjusted his jersey, you knew you were about to see something special. I don't know if there's a player in MLB history that has like a bigger disparity between how good they were and like war on a baseball reference page or a fan graphs page, because you think about what Ichiro does on the field and for baseball reference or for fan graphs an infield single is nothing special, but the way that Ichiro could just grind out infield singles at almost like like a power hitter hitting home runs. He had a knack for hitting the ball 10 feet in the infield and getting on first base. That is like, if there's like a, a metric for like infield hit runs added, Ichiro is the best ever at it or one of the best ever at it. And keep in mind that a lot of his counting stats, a lot of his rate stats are going to be a little skewed because he started his career when he was 27 He's not like a Gwen who started when he was like 22 or some of the other guys that we talk about that started as teenagers or in their early twenties. Like if you look at like a, I made a chart for one of my articles of every hitter to get to 3000 hits. And like, I just charted their career path. Each hero is lagged behind everyone else's by several hundred hits. And he still ended up at 3000. And it's just like, that kind of thing is special. And I know he only has 60 reference war. I know he only had a 107 plus. That's the same as Luke Rock. That's the same as, I think, lower than Andrew Jones. Like, okay, cool. But what he did do was in every facet you thought he was going to be good, <clears throat> he made it, it. He made the little things matter in baseball, whether that's running out infield singles and getting on first base. You know, he may not have walked a lot, but guess what? He stole so many at-bats on weak, little rollers that he just beat out to first base, you know, and then, you know, look, he's on first base. Then he steals 25, 30, 40, 50 bags in a season. He's on second. And like Alex said, he finds his way home. He had a hundred runs scored his first eight seasons for, uh, how do I put this nicely, Alex? A not very good Mariners team outside of 2001 and 2002. You're really telling me that those teams were bad. You're right. I mean, why why do you have to worry about me on that one? I mean, the 2002 Mariners were still pretty good overall. Those three Mariners also won 93 games. Yeah, exactly. Like the Mariners were good. They just as the as we got further and further away from 2001, the worse and worse the team got. Well, so I heard that no two some team in Oakland rattled off 20 game winning streak. Yeah, I mean, they were trying something weird. I think it has, I think it was called like, I don't know, Coinbase or something like that. Some, something uh, some, like that. Yeah. yeah, it was, I don't know. Anyway, no, but I mean, the Bears probably would have done better if uh, Moneyball hadn't existed. But at the same time, like, no, you're right. That Mares team was not, was not amazing through his career and all the way up until when he left Seattle. It just kind of, got worse and worse yeah and one final thing i want to touch on that you're not going to see on a baseball reference page you're not going to get is we talk about the slap hitting right the 107 ops plus the slugging percentage that was just over 400 well that was a choice alex can speak to this more but if you were in a big spot are, are the bases loaded? Is it the ninth inning? Is it in the playoffs? Oh, you want each year out the plate. You know, he might be a, a slap singles hitter in May or a, a slap singles hitter in June or whatever, but bases loaded, he's the best hitter on the planet. 
ninth inning, extra innings, he's the best hitter on the planet. Playoffs, oh, he had 12 hits and 20 at-bats, his first ever playoff series. He had a 346 batting average in the playoffs. Okay, there you go. Welcome to the moment. Um, to kind of add on to that a little bit, um, I'll tell a personal story then on this one. I went to a game, Mariners v. Yankees, and you want to talk about big moments. This is about as much as you can get. And also talking about situational hitting. We talked about how Ichiro could also have the big bopper swing if he wanted to, he just never really wanted to. He, again, he was the, he preferred to have, you know, a higher batting average and just grind out at bats. But when he wanted to, he could let, he could let the big dog fly. Um, there's a game between Mariners and Yankees in Seattle. And I believe the score at the time was two to one in favor of the Yankees going to the bottom of the ninth inning, two outs Mariners got a runner on the second base. And it, I believe it was Mike Sweeney. If I remember correctly, like I could be very wrong on that, but not a fast runner on second base. And with two outs, you didn't need that you needed more than just a single to win the game. You could even a double with the speed that was on second would be a little tough. You needed a home run. And against Mariano Rivera, the greatest closer in history, hits a home run into right field to win the game. Like, you talk about a guy that knows how to make the, the moment his and a guy that knows how to take every situation and make it his own. You can't get much better than Ichiro. Ichiro, like, like you just said, Splash, whenever he has the moment, whenever the moment is right, you want him in that. He, it may, he's the one that if you want to have success in that moment, you want Ichiro right there. Yeah, and you know, uh, I was going to speak to it too. You guys kind of beat me to it. So uh, I I got to see him take batting practice. Uh, this was in 2013 when he was with the Yankees. Uh, they were playing against the Mets at City Field. And you know, this is 39-year-old Ichiro. He steps in the, for batting practice and probably takes the most impressive round of batting practice I've ever seen. He stepped in there and hit, like, I swear, five straight frozen ropes into the second deck in right field. It was like, I had never seen anything like this. Like, wow, this dude just stepped in there and just hit bullet, bullet, bullet. Like, dude, he, dude was unreal. And also, I mean, speaking to your point, so for his career, he was only uh, a 402 slugging percentage for his career. Uh, with the bases loaded, his slugging percentage um, in two in 170 plate appearances, his slugging percentage was 523 with the bases loaded. So, I mean, dude, what he wanted to hit, he had four career grand slams. I mean, with the bases loaded in two outs, he slugged 500. Um, with the bases loaded one out, he slugged 566. I mean, when he wanted to hit for power, he could hit for power. And I'm going to speak also to his Japanese league stats. Uh, when he was in NPB, he had 25 homers one year, uh, a year in which he also stole 49 bases. He also had a year where he hit 385. Uh, in 2000, the last year he was with Odix, uh, he hit 387 with a 999 OPS. So here's the thing is that if we're judging by purely his uh, stats in the U.S., you know, he, he's it's already great. You know, 10-time All-Star, over 3,000 hits. He had 10 straight years of 200-plus hits. And people are like, oh, well, look how badly he fell off. Oh, yeah, remember, he came to the majors when he was 27. He was 37 in 2011. So, I mean, obviously you expect players to fall off eventually. 
So it's understandable why he fell off those last few years. Even with that, he was still stealing bases. I mean, he stole, um, he stole 40 bases in 2011, 29 in 2012, 20 in 2013, 15 in 2014, 11 in 2015, and 10 in 2016, which is also the year he got his 3,000th hit. By the way, that year he uh, upped his batting average up to 291 with the 730 OPS after it being down at 561 the year before. So the dude, he just, I thought he was going to play forever. I couldn't imagine him retiring ever. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have seen him play uh, both for the Mariners, the Yankees. Actually, I saw him play for the Mariners, Yankees, and Marlins. So I'm really glad I got to see him play. Overall, man, it's tough because if you include his Japanese league stats, you know, his, his stats at NPB, which, by the way, gives him 28 seasons of professional baseball. He is the all-time hit king. He's more hits than Pete Rose, 4,367, an 807 OPS because he had a career 943 OPS, and a 353 batting average uh, across nine NPV seasons. Man, I it's tough to put him anywhere. Um, well, it depends. How much do you guys factor in the NPV stats? Because if you factor in the NPV stats, he probably is closer to number one. But I think excluding excluding his NPB stats, I have him at number three. So here's what I think with it. I think that you got to at least acknowledge the stats. But at the same time, because it, it, you're right, it's tough. Because, again, it's a very different league. It's a very different style than here in, than here in, the, in, in the MLB because it's played very differently. And so can you count the stats the same way? I don't know. But I do think that they need to at least be acknowledged. Like from it, Ichiro's hit total should be marked for it because that matters. He started his career so much later than all these other people. At that point, I feel like, uh, see, it's really tough because this is a guy that has done so much and he's, he started his MLB career so late and still was able to put up these numbers. Like we have the number here of the 60 war here, according to baseballreference.com. I don't like that. I don't like the number because I think that if he was in the MLB for this, for the full amount of time, that number would be much higher. That number would be in uh, his hit total would be higher. His RBIs would be higher. His everything would be better, but it's not because he wasn't here. So, man, this is honestly really, and I'm kind of going a little bit off script from what my original thoughts were. I think overall you got to include them at least in some degree. I'm not gonna. I would definitely still keep them like you know separate. His is the stats versus his MLB stats, but at least acknowledge that both exist. And I think it's also important to acknowledge that that's like, he came here at 27. So he's not going to have the same counting totals as the next guy we're going to talk about. Um, and you're going to have like a sharp decline <clears throat> in year 11 when everyone else is, you know, theoretically entering their prime in, in year 11, but his, his prime was year two or year three right? His like athletic prime in his early thirties. So I think he's number two on my list. Um, you know, awesome defensively sort of man of the moment with the, with the bat. Um, and I know uh, like a lot of the playoff stuff that, Oh, 
he didn't win a world series. Okay. It's not his fault. He was on the Mariners, right? Like it's kind of the, the trout conversation we have now, like, okay. It, it, baseball, there's 26 guys on a roster nowadays. Only one player can only have so much impact. So I don't hold any playoffs against him. I don't hold the lack of longevity, quote unquote, lack of longevity in major league baseball against him. And he would be my number two player here. So I think, man, personally, man, he, cause he's one of my favorite players. That's the thing too. I think, I think I'm going to put him at number three, just, I mean, I want to consider his NPB stats at the same time. I think that the guys we have uh, remaining are both very worthy of being ahead of him. So, yeah, I, I unfortunately will put him at number three. Um, as much as I want to put him at number one, I just don't know if I can do that necessarily. But anyways, we're going to move on to our next guy. Uh, it's very similar to Ichiro in the, uh, the playing style, and that is Tony Gwynn, Mr. Padre. Man, now you could look up uh, – a number of crazy stats about uh, Tony Gwynn, but uh, guys, what are, you, what are your thoughts on Tony Gwynn? So I think he's almost like the antithesis of Gary Sheffield that he is Mr. Padre. There is, when you think of the Padres, you think of Tony Gwynn, right? When you think of Tony Gwynn, you think of the Padres there. One is one and one is the other. And like a guy like Sheffield kind of might get lost in the shuffle because, you know, if you're playing, <clears throat> if he made the hall of fame, whose helmet would he have on his plaque, right? You know darn well what team Tony Gwynn's going to have on his plaque. So I think that matters to some of the like the older older voting blocks, if you will, that, oh, well, he's a, a Padres legend. That, that accounts for something. It accounts that he's the best player in Padres history, right? At least for now, at least for now. But with Gwynn, you have perhaps the greatest pure hitter of all time. I You can... Does he have the same batting average as Ty Cobb? No. But does he have as many hits as Pete Rose? No. But that, at a certain point, you have to factor in era, comparing him to Cobb, and you have to factor in just how long Pete Rose played. So, of course, he's not going to have 4,200 hits because he only had 3,141. That is still a mammoth total, and he still had a 338 batting average, and he still flirted with 400. Like, we are talking Ted Williams numbers here for Tony Gwynn, and just... The way he introduced like instant video review of hitting and how he was so consistent at the plate every single season, he's going to bat 300. Every single season, it's going to be a a very high over 300. It's not just going to be like, oh, a 301, right, or a 302 or whatever. He's going to, you know, hit 394 in the strike year in 94. He's going to hit 368, 353, 372, 370, 351. You know, he's going to have those years. You know, and there's we we fall in love with these arbitrary cutoffs like batting for 300. Okay, well, Gwyn had one season that he batted below 309. If you want an arbitrary cutoff, that was his first season. He played 54 games, 289. Whoa, wow, that's so bad. He had an OPS plus above 105 every single season of his career. It was above 110 every year after 1984. He went to the World Series with the Padres in '84. 15-time All-Star, five gold gloves, seven silver sluggers, eight batting titles, eight. 
are you kidding me? 200 hits in 84, 86, 87, 89. Would have had it probably in 94, 95, but those were strike seasons. Oh, and then turns around, gets 220 hits at the ripe old age of 37. Had a 400 on base percentage many of those seasons and a career 132 OPS plus. Uh, so, oh, sorry, go for it. No, no, I, I was directing you, Alex. <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm, I'm looking, I was like, because there's something that I really, I'd love Tony Gwynn. Do not get me wrong. I love Tony Gwynn. I love the guys that are good slap hitters, guys that are the definition of putting in the work. But there's something I want to bring up, and this is a good thing. First, I want, before anything has ever, is even said right here, I just want to make sure, I, I want to point this out. Because this is incredible to me. Right now in today's in today's game, one of the best hitters is Aaron Judge. All right, and I know very different hitters, understandable, yes. But I just want to bring this up because I feel like this needs to be said. Aaron Judge, in his rookie of the year, finishing second in the MVP. Yes, he had a he had a two eighty four batting average. Yes, he hit fifty two home runs, one hundred fourteen RBIs. Struck out 208 times that one season. He's currently played for six years and has struck out 733 times. What does that have to do with Tony Gwynn? Well, I'm going to take a look at a few of his seasons. And let's, you know, he finished third in the MVP in 1984. Oh, well, okay, fair. So almost close, you know, second, third, very close together. How many times did Tony Gwynn strike out in that season? 23. Just under a tenth of the amount of strikeouts in a full season. Okay, well, you know what? That's one season. You know, let, 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 let's, you can't say it on one season. Well, okay, let's take a 20-year career. A 20-year career worth of strikeouts. Oh, man, I just, this is insane to me. Um, if you would have told me that Tony Gwynn would have just barely, and I mean just barely. Oh wait, no, never mind. No, I'm I needed to completely amend what I'm saying. Yeah, no. If you would have told me that over a career of twenty plus years, that Aaron Judge, in his six years, would have almost double the amount of strikeouts that Tony Gwynn had in 20 years, I would have thought you were being insane. I would have thought that is just out asinine, but it's true. Aaron Judge, over the, his six-year MLB career so far, and has been a rookie of the year, has been in the MVP conversation three of those six years, has struck out a grand total of 733 times. Tony Gwynn, in his 20-year career, 434. For a 162-game average of 29 strikeouts. We talk a lot about players like Greg Maddox. Like, this, Tony Gwynn is the Greg Maddox of hitting. Because he's able to find ways that he's going to beat you in ways that don't even make sense. He's going to beat a pitcher and not let them even have a chance at winning. 
He, you, you cannot strike out Tony Gwynn in his entire career. The most strikeouts that he has ever had in one season is 40. 40 in 1988. And man, you know, that was his worst year. He didn't even make an all-star game that year. He was only 11th in the MVP voting. This guy was a consummate professional that as a hitter, he's exactly what you want. When you put the ball in play, that lets opportunities happen. When you put the ball in play, something is going to happen on the field, whether it be you get a hit, you could get out, but errors can happen. Bloops can happen. All these things can. It goes very similar to the Vladimir Guerrero debate because he was also a guy that just found ways to get on base. He found ways to put the ball in play. And that is what Tony Gwynn was a master of. He was not the greatest defensively. In fact, you take a look at his defense. And honestly, career-wise, he had a career over 20 seasons, a negative 7.6 defensive war, according to baseballreference.com, for an average of negative 0.5. In fact, you take a look at his career, there's only a, a handful of years that he even had it in the positives. Much more years that he was in the negatives. But... He was a consummate hitter, one that, that you watched him play and you knew that it was it was a cold day in hell when he struck out because it just did not happen ever. He had a constant batting average where you take a look at this and in his entire career, taking away his rookie year where he only played 54 games, the first year that he had a batting average of below 300 doesn't exist. Every single season, he had a batting average of above 300, except for his rookie year, where he played 54 games at a batting average of 289, just 11 points shy of batting 300. What more do you say? This guy is the definition of a hitter. I mean, you could pick any stat about Tony Gwynn's career. I mean, dude, he... His thing is, he's an eight-time batting champion, and so he won his first batting title in 1984 when he was 24, and he wins three in a row from 87 to 89. Uh, so, you know, he, so he wins three in a row, so he's 27, 28, 29, and then he wins four in a row from 94 to 97 when he, uh, so in 1994, the strike-shortened year, he was hitting 394 when plays stopped. It's a 454 on base percentage and a 568 slugging, giving him a career high 1022 OPS. Well, have you know though, he was hitting 475 in August you know, t- through 10 games in August. So, wow, um, there's a real chance he could have hit 400 if we uh, if uh, the season finished. So there's that. But the fact that he was 34 in 1994 when he hit 394. I mean, in 1997, which uh, he set a career high for extra base hits. I mean, the dude, this is a 37-year-old hitting 372 with 49 doubles, 17 homers, and 119 RBIs. That's not normal for a 37-year-old. And he remained an effective player, even if even if he had limited playing time because of injuries. He was just day in, day out. All he all he did was hit. And you know, a career batting average of 338. And uh, I saw a stat recently, 338 career batting average. No San Diego Padre has even done that for a season. So he's just, he's easily the best Padre of all time. 
Um, maybe, maybe Fernando Tatis will eventually pass that. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be possible. Uh, this guy, I mean, sure, 7.7 walk rate. Well, does it really matter when you're hitting 338? Um, a 4.2% strikeout rate for his career? That's, wow, that's the, the worst strikeout rate of his career was in his last season when he struck out 8% of the time. That's still, the league average is 15.4%. And even so, I mean, he struck out 8% of the time in 112 plate appearances. I mean, what more can I say? Um, Overall, I think I have him second. And it's because the guy we're going to talk about last, I think sort of combines all those tools that we've talked about. Uh, Do you, where where do you guys have him ranked? So I have, I have Gwen ranked, third just behind Ichiro just I, I think you have the same sort of approach at the plate just Ichiro has a little bit more or his numbers are a little deflated because of when he came into the league as opposed to Gwyn and like the rate stats say a 338 batting average to a 311 batting average <clears throat> that did, is dependent on the years they played like literally playing in the 21st century versus playing in the 80s 90s and 2000 2001 so I would take Ichiro by a hair over Gwen. So overall for me, I'm still kind of deciding. Like even with the top guy right now, I'm the next guy that we're going to talk about. I mean, um, I, I'm still going back and forth between these, these three because all three of them have legitimate reasons why they should be at the top. All of them have done incredible things in their career. So I'm going to give my ranking at the very end, because to be honest, even at the time of recording this, I'm still not a hundred percent sure. I understand, especially how good this next guy is. And I will let Mac introduce him, but all three of these guys are absolute legends. Yes. And uh, the last guy we were talking about is also a hall of famer. He got in on his 10th year, 10th and final year on the ballot. And that is Larry Walker, who played for four different teams, started out with the Expo, or sorry, three different teams. Uh, he started out with the Expos, then went to the Rockies and finished out his career with St. Louis. I, in my opinion, he sort of combines all the, you know, different aspects of all the players we've talked about. Uh, you, your guys' thoughts first. I mean, I, I think he might be the best player here. Yeah, so with other players, we've touched on batting average, we've touched on defense, we've touched on stolen bases. Well, Larry Walker had 230 steals. He stole 20 bases in a season three different times, including 33 in his MVP season 1997. He hit for average, career 313 average, won three batting titles, was competing with Tony Gwynn a couple of those seasons, batted 366 in 1997, didn't win the batting title somehow, some way, but did win it in 98, 99, and 2001. But at the same time, He also led the league in on-base percentage twice, slugging percentage twice. Both of those happened to be the same year. Led the league in OPS twice. And had a career OPS plus in the 140s. Had a 178 OPS plus in his MVP season. Drove in a major league high 409. Had a major league high 409 total bases in that season. All while being perhaps the best defensive right fielder in baseball career total of 94 defensive runs according to baseball reference and despite playing right field for his entire career 
He had a positive defensive war, which is ridiculously difficult to do when you factor in positional value because right fielders get a solid negative four, negative five, negative six if they play the full season in, in terms of positional value. And Larry was beating it out year after year after year after year. So props to him, many-time Gold Glover, many-time All-Star, 1997 MVP, and was finally inducted into the Hall of Fame on his 10th ballot with Derek Jeter a couple of years ago. I mean, it's a crying shame it took him that long. But I mean, the, we're sitting here discussing a guy that could potentially be the greatest right field in the semi-modern era. And it took him to his 10th ballot to make it to the Hall of Fame? Uh, again, you know what? That's, that's an argument for another day. But you look at what he's done, and I mean, what you guys said is really, what you guys have said is already true. You look at every stat, every metric, when it comes to Larry Walker, and every one of them is great. A career 72.7 war. Just shy of 7,000 at-bats, by the way, as well. Just want to throw that part out there, too. But a career on-base percentage of 400. Not a one-year. A career on-base percentage of 400. Career slugging 565. Career OPS of 965. What what did this guy not do? He stole, he hit, he could feel to it a strong degree. This guy was a five-tool player and one that did it at an exceedingly high rate. His only backdrop is that they say that it's inflated because he went and played in Colorado. I'm sorry, but if that is legitimately your best argument for saying that Larry Walker is not a Hall of Famer or not worthy of being at the top of this list, then get a life. Then I guess at that point, we should just not have a team in Colorado then. If all the players and all the stats for there are inflated, then maybe we just shouldn't have a team in Colorado. But no, we don't. We have a team in Colorado. We have the Rockies. We're very happy about that. Some people are, some people are not, but whatever. And how can you use that as a thing against it? The team that he played for is a problem? Come on. Look, you look at what he's done over his career. A 400 on base percentage over his career. Take a look at where, again, in his MVP year, getting 452. And in 1999, where he finished 10th in the MVP, he led the league. He led the league in, so not just like led all of baseball in batting average, on base percentage, slugging, and OPS. He, he again, he led the league in those categories, guys. Those are like, that's the slash line. That's what we all think about when we think of best stats. You look at batting average, on-base percentage, slugging, and OPS. He was the best. The best. And you go back a couple of years ago again to his MVP year. The only one of those four he didn't lead, didn't lead baseball in was in batting average. Even then, he still hit 366. Man, you look at this guy, and he does everything. You can use the argument of defense, but how can you do that? He still has over his a 17-year career a positive defensive war. Tony Gwynn, over his 20-year career, has a negative 7.6 defensive war. Vladimir Guerrero on this list. Defensive war over his entire 16 career is a negative 10. Gary Sheffield over his career. I mean... 
for Sheffield, especially you look at what he's done and it's just, it, it, it doesn't stack up. None of these players do for him. He had a negative 27.7 defense of all this, according to baseballreference.com, by the way, of all the players that we have on these lists on this list of five, only two had a positive defensive war. And Larry Walker is one of the other one being Ichiro Suzuki. But man, this guy did everything. This guy was a hitter. He was a fielder. He hit for power, hit for average. He hit to get on base and then could even steal a few bags in there. He did everything you wanted him to do. And for Ichiro's sake, by the way, that defensive war 5.4 over his career. For Larry Walker, his defensive war 2.0. So Ichiro does have a beat out on that. But you just look at everything that Larry Walker did. And he was an absolute catalyst as a player. Yeah, and I like I was saying earlier, I mean, I think he, you know, he has the hitting abilities, you know, for average that Gwyn and Ichiro did. Uh, you know, he has the same defense that Ichiro did, in my opinion, the throwing arm that Ichiro and Guerrero had. He's the power hitting abilities that Guerrero and Sheffield had. I mean, he was a complete player, a five-tool player. He also, uh, the 72.7 war is tops of these five that we were talking about. Gwyn about 69. Uh, Ich uh, Ichiro and Sheffield were both at 60 and Vlad at 59.5. So he's the best at that. Uh, to 141 OPS plus 965 OPS, 383 homers. Uh, he had over 2,100 hits. This is a guy also who was supposed to play hockey initially. He was uh, he was undrafted for baseball. I mean, he was uh, he was a he picked up baseball. I would say later than the other guys. Um, you know, he came into the league as a 22 year old, and I mean, as soon as he started getting regular playing time for the Expos, he he blossomed. I mean, really, in 94, that was his last year. Uh, he hit 322 with the 981 OPS. Um, he was just, you know, then he goes to Colorado. You know, he was a monster in Colorado. And I want to mention that 97 MVP season. You know, he, uh, you know, he hit 366, 452, 720 slugging, 1172 OPS, 49 homers, which led the NL. Uh, only second in batting average to Tony Gwynn, by the way, who hit 370. Um, he had a higher OPS on the road actually than he did at home. His at home he hit 384, yes, uh, with an 1169 OPS. Uh, he hit 29 homers on the road though, compared to 20 at home. And his OPS on the road was 1176. So I mean, oh, oh, by the way, he had a 9.8 more that year. 9.8. That's that's really good. Um. Also, so he was a three-time batting champion, uh, the last of which he won in 2001 when he was 34. And he continued to rake uh, up, up until his very last year. I mean, 886 OPS his last year in St. Louis. He also helped them make the World Series in 2004. I mean, what more can I say? And also, I mean, talk about the Hall of Fame. He was trending downward. He reached 10.2% in 2014. He was only at 11.8 in 2015. 2016, only 15.5, only 21.9, 2017, 34.1, all right, baby steps, 2019, 54.6, and then he got 76.6% of the vote in 2020, the last year he was on the ballot, which was absolutely amazing to see. You know, I think now that he's in the Hall of Fame, that should pave the way for guys, pave the way for guys like Todd Helton and Nolan Arenado to get in. I mean, this guy can do everything. I mean, 
I, I don't know what else to say. Plus, he was in backyard baseball with Tony Gwynn and Vlad Guerrero uh, and Ichido, actually. So, uh, oh, wow, now that I think about it, Sheffield was the only guy who wasn't in backyard baseball ever, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, fitting that he's number five on this list. <laughs> I mean, yeah, even, well, backyard very, baseball, very, even backyard baseball there, knew. There you go. Uh, but Walker, I think Walker's got to be number one. He does. He combines all those tools that you want. Wow. What, what more can I say? I mean, he, he, he was just simply amazing. So uh, my order. Oh, by the way, he only struck out 15.3% of the time. So he, it's not like he was a strikeout guy either. So in my, my order, I have Walker, Gwynn, Ishiro, Guerrero, and Sheffield. Uh, what, what do you guys have? Similar, I'm assuming you guys have a similar order, right? Yeah, so my order is actually I think the same of what splashes is I've got been going back and forth on a few things, and I'm saying that Walker is number one. I think that's been definitively proven now at this point. I'm gonna put Ichiro at number two. If anything, for the defense, yes, yes, uh Gwyn had incredible hit hitting stats, and that strikeout numbers always gonna dry my draw my eye to it. But I look at the defense, and if I want Incredible defense as well as being a consummate hitter. I go Ichiro, so I'm putting him at number two. Gwen is at number three. Vladdy at number four. And Sheffield at number five. Yep, same order. Walker one, Ichiro two, Gwen three, uh, Vladdy four, and Mr. Sheffield five. And I, I have one fun fact for you guys. Here is the comprehensive list of every player to play in major league baseball and have a or every right fielder to play in major league baseball and have a higher slugging percentage than larry walker whole list babe ruth that's, Wait, that's what? list that's, yeah. wow. list. that's it <laughs> babe ruth 690 slugging percentage larry walker 565 next up is juan gone then stan hank aaron judge vladdy acuna klein stanton robinson wow. otani sosa mel Ott. And then JD Martinez at 528. Dang. Wow. That's that's really impressive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Larry, Larry Walker, yeah. man, he's I'm so happy he's in the Hall of Fame because I think, you know, cores are not cores. Those numbers are impressive. Plus, he was pretty darn good in Montreal and in St. Louis. So exactly. Like again, I'm glad I'm glad he got the recognition he deserves. Like I said when we were talking about it earlier, if you're one argument. It, for Larry Walker not being a Hall of Fame or not being at the top of this kind of list is that he played in Coors, we played in Colorado. You're just wrong. You are yeah. objectively wrong. Yeah. I well, I would like, yeah. Well, then I will say real quick, I was actually doing a little bit of looking up here on some stuff about each and I found this quote and it, it really talks to what we were talking about him earlier about being in any situation. He's the guy that you want to be hitting right there because he knows how to make the situation right and how to play the game to the situation. This is a direct quote from Ichiro. When you get up to the plate, nobody's there to help you. You've got to do this on your own. And, I mean, it's true. Baseball is a very lonely game when you look at it that way. Every game, every at-bat is pitcher versus hitter. And if you are – it's about who's going to win each one of those battles. And most of the time, the pitcher's going to win. There's a reason why being an elite hitter, the mark of it is 30%. <laughs> but, I mean, you it's about who could make the best out of that 30%, that 30 to 40%. And Ichiro was one of the best to do that as well. 
And to like follow up on your point with cores, you don't see the inverse argument with other players. Like if a player played their entire career, like we didn't mention that Tony Gwynn played at Petco, right? Or played in San Diego, which is a horrendous hitters park. We just didn't mention even, that. Even, well, or Qualcomm Stadium. Qualcomm Stadium where he uh, played, that was the Padres home during his career. I mean, that was not a hitters yeah. park guy. Yeah, like yeah, regardless neither, if it's yeah. Petco or just anywhere in San Diego, it's not a hitter friendly park. Dodger Stadium is not a hitter friendly park. And he played a bunch of games there. You know, San Francisco has never been a hitter friendly park. He played a bunch of games there as well. So, and even Larry Walker did when he was with the Rockies. So I think we never have the inverted argument of, oh, well, this player would have had so much better numbers if they had played I don't know, at like a league average place, or you don't mention, oh, well, Curtis Granderson had 20 triples in 2007, but those don't count because he played at Comerica, which is like triples heaven. No, you don't, like Coors is the only place we have this argument. I think it's a little hypocritical that you people try to kind of almost shame Walker and Helton and Arenado, guys like that, when they're putting the ball in play. It's not like like baseball is the same at altitude. You still have to hit the ball. It doesn't matter if, if the ball bounces off your bat at a better clip or that if any, any lowly fly ball is a home run, you still have to hit the darn baseball. Yeah. You're, I mean, that's the thing is, uh, you, yeah, you still have to do that. I mean, you know, you're just because you play in Colorado yeah. is automatically you're going to be better. I mean, uh, the one time I do hear the inverse argument is uh, when people talk about Willie Mays. Uh, Willie Mays played at Candlestick Park, where a lot of his home runs got knocked down by the wind. So people do say that maybe if he played in a different ballpark, he would have had a he would have been the all time home run king. But you know that's that's an argument for another day. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, I mean, L- Larry Walker just he, he was simply amazing. I mean, I, I all all five of these guys were great players. That's the thing. Uh, I just think. Walker was the most complete of them because he hit for power and for average. Plus he played great defense and could run. So uh, I'd rather rather be the Jack of all trades, master of none than a master of one trade, but horrible at everything else. Couldn't have said it any better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Number unofficial number six on this list. Yeah, unofficially, yes, uh, Sammy Sosa would be number six on this list for anyone who's wondering. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> we're, we're coming down to the end of the show. Uh, guys, any other final thoughts before we uh, end off today's episode? I have oh. one, I guess, a little bit of trivia. Can you name the three active right fielders with a higher OPS plus in their career than Larry Walker? Uh, how many plate appearances? Uh, so one of them has, let's see. Let's see. One of them has twenty five hundred. The next one has, and then the next two have over five thousand. Okay, so currently active. Yeah, currently active. All of them are like still like reason. Like they're not. They're not like Miguel Cabrera, the equivalent of Miguel Cabrera playing right field. They're all like, if they won the MVP next year, I don't think you'd be shocked. Okay, Um, right field specifically. Yes. I'm trying to think. Right field, man. Who plays right? Yeah, who even plays right field anymore, man? Because right field, <laughs> I, always think of, I always think of Juan Soto, but he doesn't have that many plate appearances. Yeah, it's not, not Soto's not on the list for right fielders. No, because he's not qualified yet, also. Right. Harper? Harper is correct. 142, one point okay. ahead. 
had had a feeling Harper would be there. All right, so Harper's one. Man, uh, how many plate appearances did you say again? Is about twenty five hundred. The second guy is over five thousand. Aaron Judge. Yeah, Aaron Judge, Judge is correct. One. one yeah, right. Aaron, Aaron Judge, Judge is my guess. two. All right. And then who's the three? Third? Is wow. Hint, who he might number... not be considered a right fielder for much longer. Well, I guess for the sake of baseball reference, he'll always be considered a right fielder, what? but he might not be in your head as a right fielder right now. What in the world? Okay. So he yeah, might be a right tough. fielder, but he might not be a right fielder. Ronald Acuna? Uh, no, our Lord and Savior would still be counted as a right fielder. <laughs> um, Mookie? Uh, Mookie is at a 134. Oh, I was, that was going to be my next guess. Um, ah, hmm. man, that is tough. That is really I, tough. Yeah. I always think of Mookie Betts. Yeah. Um, all right, so we have Harper, we have Judge. Wow. I'm trying to think of like a fun. Oh, um, Charlie Blackman. No, it is that's... not Blackman. Nah, Blackman, unfortunately, has the core's argument against him. Uh, yeah. Now we're just uh, now we're just making the podcast longer. <laughs> this. Okay, yeah, I don't know. I okay. Here is a hint. He used to share a name with someone that used to pitch for the team he currently plays for. That does not help even. I can't even begin to tell you how much it that really does not should, help. It should help, but I tried to be intentionally goofy about it. What in the world? Boy. He, so he, did he change his name? Yes. All right, that's not. Um, <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> did he change his first name, his last yes. name? Yes, he changed his first name. John Carlos Stanton. Yes. There we go. Okay. okay. There. All right. There we go. All right. Yeah. And there. Braves that... legend Mike Stanton. Also Yankees legend Mike Stanton. Yes. I, and Mets <laughs> yeah, legend Mike, Mike Stanton. And, and Florida legend. Yes. I I, I, I should have. Yeah, for yeah, some yeah, reason, I, I didn't I feel... put two and two together. Uh, yeah, I should have gotten that much earlier. Uh, John Carlos like Stanton. Stanton. Maybe one day we will be talking about John Carlos Stanton in this conversation. Uh, Maybe. Hopefully. I hope he really gets I hope so. Deep, man. I mean, like, he's he still carried very my good. fantasy team this year. Like, he he I mean, did a carry job in uh, late he, September. He hits. Man, he, you know, well, I mean, Stanton's one of those guys where when he makes contact ball, yeah. simply like, explodes off his bat. Like he yeah, had a down exactly. year, like a quote unquote down year this year, and he had an eight seventy OPS, thirty five home runs. Like, so what? Wait, what's his OPS plus? You said one forty three for his. Career? All right, that makes sense. So wow, those so that just shows how good Larry Walker uh, uh-huh. was. Uh, uh-huh. But anyways, uh, we're coming down to the end of the episode. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, you can make sure to tune in all off season long, even while the league is on lockout. We will not be stopping our recording. We'll try to record every week. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow myself at Matthias underscore A underscore K. You can follow Splash at Mr. Splashman 19. You can follow Alex at the Sports Guy 242. Make sure to follow the baseball department Twitter account at baseball underscore OTH and to follow the Chief Seats Chatter Twitter account at OTH underscore Chief Seats. But for everyone at Overtime Heroics for Splash, for Alex, I've been today's host, Matthias Altman Kurosaki. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you all real soon. Go baseball. <laughs>